0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 61 Lost Forever. This episode contains part three of the universalism debate between Turret and Fan and Jason Pratt. Uh, as again, as, as is usually the case, I'm going to leave out any monologue or promotional materials. Uh, but I do want to recap you um, so that you recall we were where we were at when we last left off. In episode 59, we listened to part one of the debate, where Turret and Fan affirmed the proposition that some people will not be saved from their sins, according to five specific passages. Uh, Jason Pratt followed up with his 30-minute opening, and then each of them had a 15-minute rebuttal. And then in episode 60, we uh, listened to part two of the debate, which was uh, cross-examination. Each... Um, each participant in the debate had three sets of 10 minutes each to uh, cross-examine his opponent um, and that was again as i've said multiple times my favorite part of a debate and the part that i think is most important and it was there that we left off in episode 60 and now in episode 61 we begin the part three of the debate which includes question and answers from me to each of Turret and fan and jason followed by their closing arguments So with that, let's move right into part three of the debate. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, now, do you guys do either of you need another five-minute break before we enter into the question and answer period? I'm good to go. Well, we're gonna move into uh, question and answer period now. I don't. I didn't receive any questions for either of you from my listeners, and so I've tried to come up with what seemed to me to be the most challenging questions for you guys in the context of these passages. Uh, obviously, given that we were s- focusing on a specific set of passages, I couldn't just appeal to any passage out of the blue, uh, and so I tried to stick to these passages. And also, let me just make the disclaimer that my questions for you, Jason, given that I'm not as convinced of the uh, s- understanding of hell that Turret and Fan has. Mine are going to come from a distinctive, distinctly different understanding of the nature of hell. And the first question that I have for you is this. In your opening... You acknowledged, I think, that the eternal fire into which the goats are cast in Matthew twenty-five forty-one is the lake of fire of Revelation. Jude 7 says that the permanent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah exemplifies this eternal fire. And in Mark 9, Jesus' reference to unquenchable fire and undying worms draws from Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 66, which likewise speak of permanent destruction. John says even death itself is permanently destroyed by the lake of fire. If after the resurrection the wicked are thrown into a fire which permanently destroys, how could they go on to be redeemed?
1: That depends on, of course, whether they actually are permanently destroyed. <laughs> uh, in the case of Isaiah, for example, uh, the scene, as I, as I noted in, my, in one part of my earlier argument, uh, regards... Uh, the, the scene is the same as that which is set in Ezekiel, where the, the rebel armies have come up against Jerusalem for the last time. God's come down to save Jerusalem. Uh, the rebel armies have been just beat to snot, and they're scattered everywhere. And the survivors are uh, going out and burning the bodies. Uh, and in fact, it, it takes them seven years to bury the bodies, and during that time, they don't have to go out and get wood to, for, for their fires or anything, because they can use the... the the weapons and armor for it, how that actually is going to play out in modern times, I have not a clue, but that's the setting of the, of the verse. Uh, my argument there is that it really just doesn't, it doesn't really have anything specifically to do with being eternally destroyed in the Isaiah sense. Uh, if there are other places in Isaiah that indicate uh, the, that these people are going to be resurrected later, then uh, that would be afterward. Uh, in other words, there's a period of time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of guess that what we're, what, we're talk, what we're looking at here is the period of the millennium reign uh, before the final judgment and the res- resurrection of the wicked and the dead. Uh, when uh, Christ comes down, he'll be ruling in Jerusalem, and, and the peace will be established on the earth, and then Satan and the rest of them are going to come out and, and hit him up again. And God's going to wipe them out very fast this time. So in the case of uh, – it, really, it's just a question of do the context elsewhere indicate that the story goes on further? I would argue that they do. Uh, otherwise, I, I guess I really don't have any other answer. <laughs> it, it turns completely on the question of whether the, the story contexts go on further elsewhere.
0: Okay. Turton Fan, your minute-long uh, response?
1: Well, very briefly obviously
2: the the premises of the question I would generally agree with in terms of uh, the the destruction being permanent, or perhaps we could say with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah at least in, in irreversible punishment it was uh, it, there was no hope for repentance for Sodom once the fire fell from heaven, but uh as far as the the connections back to, to Isaiah, I think that it's important to ask the question whether the author intends to import other aspects of those passages. In other words, those passages can have multiple, uh, multiple themes, multiple purposes, and one of the purposes may be to call the people of Israel to repentance, and, and, and not to prophesy some future post-judgment repentance.
0: Okay, uh, Turreton fan, my next question is for you. In Matthew 25's parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus seems to hearken back to Ezekiel 34, where we read things like, I am against the shepherds, I will deliver my flock from their mouth, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And then in verse 17, God says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and male goats. Doesn't this seem to support Jason's contention in his opening, that both the sheep and the goats in Jesus' parable are of the same flock, and thus ultimately will be saved?
2: With respect to the question of whether they're in the same flock and therefore will be saved, I think there's. I think that the in both cases we, we have the, uh, the 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 par- the point that's being raised both in Ezekiel thirty four seventeen uh, with respect to this uh, judging between rams and he goats. My understanding of that passage is that these are very similar creatures but God is discerning between uh, between the two that are very that that might appear to be very similar and there's much similarity between the sheep and the goats which are being divided here uh, but God is making that division and it's an, it's an important division uh, it's a division he's making I don't conclude from that that therefore these are all one flock uh, that destined for salvation
0: okay Jason um, your 60 second rebuttal
1: what was the scripture reference again?
0: It was Ezekiel 34.
1: Ezekiel 34 I was in the wrong book. I think my my main reply is going to be that the uh I think my main reply is going to be if anything that the that the Greek in the Matthew 25 indicates that these are baby goats. <laughs> uh so if there is a parallel involved, it would be a notion that uh, these people who thought that they were so awesome are actually the least of Christ's flock. Uh, I really, honestly, I haven't looked at Ezekiel 34, so I'm not real sure that I'm not real comfortable uh, commenting on that. I would want to look more into that. Okay. I, I don't know that I would want to use it. I don't know that I would want to use that myself as as uh, as some kind of evidence in favor of universalism. But maybe it would be. I don't know. I honestly okay. have no idea.
0: All right. Uh, returning to you, Jason, my second question is this. Edward Fudge gives several reasons in his book why we should why we should think that in Isaiah or in Second uh, Thessalonians one nine Paul is hearkening to Isaiah sixty six, not Isaiah two. But you argued that the form of well I'm guessing at the Greek word that you were focusing on the for, the form of the word tin Paul used must mean value, in that the ones punished will come to value the justice they receive. Now that doesn't seem to me to be how the Septuagint uses the word in places like Proverbs twenty four, twenty two, and twenty nine, and Proverbs twenty seven twelve. And according to Liddell and Scott's lexicon, Slater's lexicon, and Altenreich's Homeric lexicon, the word is used in ancient Greek literature to mean to pay the price of a punishment, to be taken vengeance upon. So the question I have for you is why should we believe that the word means to value in a sense that you've suggested, contrary to what seems to be its use in the Septuagint and throughout ancient Greek literature?
1: My first reply in regard to the question of ancient Greek literature is that, of course, inspired authors can make use of a term one way that is not being used uh, in a different way in the ancient Greek literature. They may pick up a term and use it in a different fashion. Of course, that can count against me, too. Uh, I'm just saying in this case, uh, if what is happening in the reference to Isaiah 2 is that the people are coming to value their punishment, then – that would in itself lend one thing toward it. The word is uh, tisosin, and everyone, as far as I know, agrees it's a third-person plural verb form indicating future action by the doer of the verb. Uh, Everyone seems to agree it's derived either from tino or from a rare alternate emphatic form, tio. Uh, There's some debate about which of those is the derivation. Uh, Tino means to pay in the sense of valuing or honoring. Uh, A slightly modified verb form of it, time, shows up numerous times in the New Testament in several cognates as uh, the verb temio, which always always means to honor or to value. An adjective form always describes its object as valuable. You can have a noun form that indicates value as a concept. It doesn't mean merely to pay. Uh, the New Testament authors had an entirely different word for that, which is apodidomi. Uh, tino and its cognates are definitely and clearly used everywhere else in the New Testament, with two other debatable exceptions I'll mention in a minute, for valuing or honoring something in a positive way, unless maybe it's phrased in a negative fashion, "atino" something, which this word is not. You could honor the wrong things, but the object it's the object that makes it wrong, not the verb. No one in their right mind would say that you aren't supposed to honor or value the justice of God. Um, T.O. would mean to value or honor more strongly, but because tisosim is found only one time in the whole New Testament, and because that one time is here in Second Thessalonians, and because people think on other grounds already there's no hope here, uh Translators have a debate over whether this word is supposed to be derived from tino, which would clearly make no sense, or from tio, which would make even less sense, because, but that's a very rare form, so who knows, maybe he's using it in some different way. Um, <clears throat> the only other times the cognitive of the word is used for punishment are in Hebrews 10.29, and that's temoria, in Paul's testimony about his oppression in the church in Acts two five, which is temorio, which is... uh in both of those cases, however, the punishment is something that is supposed to be used for bringing the person back into line and in, in loyal service with God. And I think I'm out of town on that. I may have to post notes on that. Uh, my my notes okay. on that on the website eventually.
0: All right, and fan, your sixty second response.
1: Well, uh, of course,
2: naturally, there's some connection between uh, you know pay the pay the value of and and to value, but the the context for, and I, if, I, if I recall correctly, you're referring to Second Thessalonians one nine. The the context there is that the the person is this this actions occurrence is tied to when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. In other words, judgment day. So it would be odd that the meaning is they would instantly or on that judgment day they would they would come to realize the value of this. Uh, eternal or everlasting or from God, I guess, is the, is the proposed alternative uh, destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Even in the uh, alleged parallel in Isaiah, it's not till subsequent, the, uh, some subsequent period when this recognition or val- uh, value <laughs> okay. is going to take place. Okay,
0: that's time. Uh, Turton fan, my second question for you is, if you acknowledge, as it sounds like you did, that the word often translated eternal might literally mean eternal, but could be used to mean forever in some no end in sight or indeterminate sense, what in the context of the passages that we've been discussing tells us that we should understand the word to literally mean forever rather than figurative, figuratively as in what you offered, which was, I was down there forever?
2: Yeah, the... Uh the re one reason is the close parallel use with the same word for life eternal, which uh no one uh no no one is uh, no one's arguing there's a metaphor uh doesn't seem that anyone's arguing that this in matthew twenty five forty six for example that that the righteous unto life eternal is referring to some sort of metaphorical it will seem like forever the eternal life but uh, but it's actually gonna you know it's gonna end fairly quickly. Or, or even it's going to end after a long amount of time, The there doesn't appear to be any indication that with reference to eternal life, this is merely metaphorical, that it's merely uh, uh, temporary, and therefore, uh, in view of the close parallel use, that we would conclude that it's likewise not merely metaphorically
1: long-in-duration
2: punishment.
0: Okay. Uh, Jason, your 60-second response.
1: Right. Um as I pointed out previously, uh, it obviously there are times when that same word is used in very close topical context to mean two similar kind of similar things, but that are ultimately quite different in terms of duration. And certainly, um, but also in the case, I didn't build my argument from that though. Uh, I built my argument from the context of the story. Which involved, you know, the question of, of, are we going to, uh, are we going to interpret this parable the way a baby goat would? There's, uh, there's the, the, the synoptic construction of the parable as a reversal of expectation and a challenge to the reader sets up an issue that, that these may not be, uh, that we should expect that the, that the punishment, the Colossus, Will not be okay. going on forever. That it's remedial. Okay. All
0: right. Uh, my third question for you, Jason, is: You argued that in Mark nine forty nine, uh, it tells us that all people will be that all people will be salted with the unquenchable fire that burns in Gehenna. But it seems to me that quite the contrary, Jesus just got done explaining how to avoid the fire, specifically of Gehenna. On the other hand, both Mark's and Luke's version of this salt statement follow texts speaking about the importance of self-sacrifice. Is it possible, then, to understand Jesus as saying that some will escape the fire of Gehenna by means of the fire of self-sacrifice, alluding to the Levitical requirement that sacrifices be salted?
1: Of course, sacrifices were salted and then put into the un, to the fire that was continually burning in the temple. There were there were priests who were whose job it was to make sure that fire kept going. Uh, so, as I, as I pointed out in my argument, they still going to be the, the sacrifices are still consumed by the fire. Uh, but of course, there is a huge question as to whether the the second part of that verse there is even original to the text about whether all sacrifices will be salt of assault, salt. Um, the best arguments that I've seen are that it's not, but that's a whole other issue. Um, gosh, a lot of this turns upon the question of whether the fire is God, is, is the Holy Spirit of God, or if there is some other unquenchable fire that's eternal, uh, aeonian fire, other than God. Uh, now, you know perfectly well that the annihilationists were, are also going to argue that that fire eventually goes out, <laughs> even if it's not God. Uh, but if the fire is God, then it's, it's a question. If, if God's the Holy Spirit here, then what we're looking at is is a question about the operations of God uh, in what they're doing. So if we have them being salted by the Holy Spirit, everybody is salted by the Holy Spirit some people are salted by the holy spirit in punishment uh, other people are salted in cooperation with the holy spirit but the end result is the same in either case that the that the salting will bring about peace in ourselves and with one another and i think this is contextually evident in many other places as well but it's also contextually evident in the area of this uh scene because there are a bunch of other parts to this scene that are fitting together in a harmonization fashion, uh, including the question of if you're not going to forgive other people, what does that say? You know, God saves you from from being thrown to the torturers, but here we are. You're looking for ways to get out of of forgiving people, other people. What is God going to do to you if you're not forgiving? Uh, we are warned about that in the synoptics several times. So, I think the context there, the overall story context of this scene does point in the direction of Jesus has now challenged them with this, this concept of the unquenchable fire salting everybody. Uh, and okay. Peter was having trouble getting a step over that.
0: Okay. Uh, to written fan?
2: Well, I, I think there's, there's two options. We can be, we, we can be seasoned with salt, which is by grace, uh, Colossians 4-6. But, uh, the, the, uh, the op, the the opposite is the person who doesn't have this salt, this grace in them, who is going to end up in, in the fire. And those are the, the all to whom it's referring. The, the question about the sacrifice is an interesting one, one I'd have to explore, uh, at greater lengths a, a, another time. i uh, note that the Ma- the Matthew and Luke references to salt is good, but the, the salt lost to savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned, immediately turn over to the destruction of this salt. So Luke 14.34 goes on to Luke 14.35, where it's thrown into the dunghill, essentially.
0: Okay, uh, Turut and Fan, my third question for you is this. In Romans 9... The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are Paul's unbelieving Israelite brothers, whom he says in chapter 11 can be grafted back in. And if Jason was right in his opening, the pottery language comes from any of multiple Old Testament passages, which in context speak of destruction intended to bring about repentance. Why then, in light of what Paul goes on to say about his Israelite brothers in chapters 10 and 11, why then ought we to read Romans 9.22 as referring to an inescapable punishment?
2: Well, we ought to view that uh as an inescapable punishment because there the uh, te- the teleology in Romans 9:22 is that these are ones that are fitted to destruction not merely that they're fitted to a risk of destruction i would uh suggest a more careful reading of Romans 11 actually suggests that the a remnant of israel will be saved later and that this remnant can be fulfilled in different persons than the ones that uh, who, over whom Paul is weeping in uh, Romans 9. Uh, Jason?
1: It looks to me like in Romans 11, he's kind of gotten over grieving, and, and I can understand that because there are people that I know that I love very much who have not yet come to accept Christ, and I have unceasing grief over that too, until they come to accept Christ. Until then, I have unceasing grief. Uh I will note that in the um, in the portion that Tifan quoted, which was uh uh Romans nine, twenty-seven and twenty-eight, the context there from Isaiah is about the pagans killing off most of the Israelites, with only some surviving who will now know better than to rely on them again. Uh that's not the end of the overall story though. And the other quotation at verse twenty-eight is from Hosea one, where the positive promise is that Israel shall indeed Be in the final day like the sands of the sea, for in that day those who are not God's people shall become God's people. And the prior context indicates these are the Jews who were disowned by God.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, my last question for you, Jason, is, uh, as we saw in the first question that I asked you, the passages that have been the focus of this debate seem to communicate destruction as being the end of the wicked, as do what appear to be numerous Old Testament passages which say that the wicked will wither and fade, be cut off, be no more, perish, will vanish, etc. In light of what these texts do seem to say, what would the Bible have to go on to say in order to convince you that there are, in fact, some people who will never be saved because they're destroyed?
1: Well, one thing is the Bible would have to go on not to say elsewhere that things like, for example, that uh God will, after he has destroyed these people down to the point where they are neither slave nor free, then they'll repent and turn around and and come back, and, and God will restore them once they have done that. And there are very many numerous passages uh that suggest this sort of thing, which we've only touched on a few of them here, and, and that would be just like hundred other debates. Um, again, at the end of the uh, Revelation to John, I would be expecting for the people just to be in the fire and maybe people going out to laugh at them or mock them or kick them some more or just ignoring them or whatever. But instead, we see evangelism. We see them going out to, in, to exhort them in, uh, which is parallel to what's going on in the, in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Uh, the language is very similar. Uh what we're in other words at the end of rev john i see the the good shepherd and the good sheep acting like the good shepherd and the good sheep not like baby goats toward the baby goats whereas the baby goats seem to be the people who were in, in that particular judgment were the kind of people who didn't go out to rescue the people that god had punished uh the the list of of punishment uh the list of of problems that people were being rescued from in the Matthew 25 is a typical list from the Old Testament that's repeated several times, including in, uh, in, uh, Jesus' opening ministry in, in, uh, his hometown Nazareth that has to do with God blinding these people, God, uh, putting these people into prison, God making sure that these people are hungry. And, and the, the, uh, the sheep have gone out and, and tried to bring these people in. And, and the goats didn't. The baby goats didn't. But these were people who had been punished by God. Uh, and so, they, but they were the least of Christ's flock after all. Well, now the baby goats, who are literally the least of Christ's flock in that verse, in, in the, that judgment, are now being put in the same position that they didn't want those other people to be saved from, that they didn't care about or, or, or didn't work to try to save them from. Uh, and, a lot of what happens there, I think, is the challenge of how are we supposed to regard the baby goats in that passage? Are we supposed to regard them as being are we supposed to be mature sheep, or are we supposed to be baby goats
0: okay, turton fan, your response
2: well the the phrasing of the question is obviously a little bit uh, uh you know biased, but the the problem the the escape the it seems as though no matter how strongly worded the statements are. These themes of the possibility of repentance are being applied, I would argue misapplied. And, uh, the, the, the only, the only way I can think to counter that point is, of course, to emphasize the, the nature of the punishments being described as, as unending and eternal. And that is the description that's given, as we've discussed. But, uh, I guess the only other point to which we could turn is something like Ecclesiastes 9-4, which says, for to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, or another passage, uh, I believe also in Ecclesiastes, where the tree falls, uh, there shall, whether to the north or south, there shall it lie. Uh, I may, I may okay, so Uh,
0: Turton fan, my fourth question for you is this. Immediately after the eternal fire of Matthew 18 8, Jesus says that the shepherd will not let even the least of his sheep perish, he then goes on to tell his disciples to forgive others no matter how many times they are sinned against. And in the parable which follows, that of the unforgiving servant, the one who doesn't forgive is imprisoned, not destroyed, until he repays his debt. Why then should we understand Matthew eighteen eight to refer to inescapable eternal destruction when the instructions which follow are all about the importance of forgiving others modeled after the shepherd's persistence in saving sinners?
2: Well, the the two aren't... Uh, opposed to one another, in other words, you can have the uh you it can be good to forgive one another in order to escape eternal judgment There's no need for those two points to be opposed as far as the the one of these little ones should perish is pointing to a specific group the the group of believers he it's not his will that any believer will perish that's what gives us hope to seize on and to trust in Christ that he will will save us.
0: okay Jason your sixty second response
1: um, let's see <laughs> I'm not, I, I think I may have already said pretty much uh, everything I want to to say there um, the um, one thing i I will mention that of course there's I'm sure each of us has several dozen things that we wished we had been able to get across uh, try to go back over that we we didn't do uh but the um when I was going through a harmonization of the scenes there, one of the things I pointed out was that these little ones were the, the young children, basically, uh, that uh, Christ was warning his apostles that they had better shape up and, and, and put aside their arrogance in order to become humble like one of these little children that uh, Jesus used as an example uh, I, I'm not sure that the little ones there really do apply only to a select group of the elect. So, But I talked about that in my original argument. So.
0: Okay, that's time. Okay, now we'll move into the closing statements, and we'll begin with Jason for his 15-minute closing statement, beginning now.
1: I know better than to think there are many non-Christians listening to this debate, since, after all, this is an inside dispute about what we ought to be preaching as the good news. And really, unless you can believe that God exists and has provided testimony to his character and intentions in the Jewish and Christian scriptures, I, I don't know how much of it can be used to you to be convinced that such scriptures testify, either that God will persist in saving all sinners from sin, or that God will persist in saving only some sinners from sin. But I can coherently and consistently say this, according to what I have found and believe to be true, God definitely loves you, whoever you are, with saving love. The gospel of Christ is not only true, but true for you, and applies to you. You are not one of the non-elect chosen by God never to receive even the capability of repenting of your sins, much more so never to receive the gift of salvation from sins. Now, T-Fan will no doubt agree with me that if you are even a little repentant of your sins, much more so if you are seeking salvation from your sins, that's thanks to God empowering you and leading you to salvation from your sins. And Shirley T. Fan will affirm that this is evidence of you being one of the elect, so far as he understands election. And both he and I will agree that if God chooses to save you from your sins, God will keep persisting at it until he gets it done. You can trust God to continue until he gets it done. And you can trust God to be competent enough and strong enough and wise enough to get it done and never to give up on you and never to be defeated. I would add that you can also trust God definitely means this for you, even if you don't yet feel led to seek salvation from your sins. But even T-Fan would probably agree that a lack of this is not in itself surefire evidence you are of the non-elect. and God may yet still lead you to this. I think my Calvinistic brother in Christ might also agree that even if you are of the elect, you may still be punished in chastisement for your sins if that's what you insist on to lead you out of them. He and I may disagree about whether that will only be in this life or also in the next, but we both agree that sin is serious, and God may go to whatever extremes he sees is best to lead you home. He has gone to the farthest extreme already, and does go to the farthest extreme now, and will go to the farthest extreme to love you home, even if you might be annoyed or inconvenienced by that love, and even to an extreme degree. It's better to to repent than to be stubborn and have to face increasing extremes. And God won't be any harsher than he has to be to get it done, but he is going to get it done. T-Fan and I disagree somewhat about why he does it. We both agree God, God does it for his glory. We disagree somewhat about what that does and does not mean, but I think we agree that his glory does, at least somewhat, involve persons loving other persons and fulfilling fair togetherness with and among them. I put that more centrally than he does because I believe Trinitarian theism is true. But T. Phan also believes Trinitarian theism is to be true, and so he also believes to at least some degree that fulfilling fair togetherness between persons is central to the glory of the Trinity, the persons of whom are always loving and just to one another. But both of us certainly do exhort you, although as a Trinitarian theist, I certainly do mean you, not maybe you, be reconciled to God. Even if you can't believe in God yet, you ought to have some idea of things that you have done that even you would agree are ethically wrong. Reject those things. Strive against them. Strive to lead other people to reason, health, and morality. You'll be striving with and not against the Holy Spirit. You won't be earning God's love that way, nor earning God's salvation. You'll be cooperating with what God centrally, essentially, self-existently is. And so cooperating with what God is already doing in your life, whether you know him or are correct in what you believe you know about him or not, you don't have to earn God's love. God, who is essentially love, loves you already. And I certainly believe that that does mean you, whoever you are listening to us. For while we were still helpless in our sins at the right time, God gave him God himself gave his life as he is always giving his life, but also historically on the cross. Christ died for the ungodly, not for the righteous, for those who are sick, not for those who are healthy. It's difficult for us to give our lives even for a righteous man, although for a good man someone may dare even to die. But this is love, not that we righteously love God the righteous, but that he, the righteous, loved us, the unrighteous, and sent his Son. The propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, the sins of Christians like t and Chris and myself, but also for the sins of the whole world, so that we may live through him. That's what the good news is about, even if Christians like T-Fan and I debate over what exactly it means. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ in the fullness of deity was pleased to reconcile all things to God, all things, whether things in the heavens needing reconciliation or things in the earth like you and me. And if while we were still enemies in our thoughts and understandings, we were reconciled to the Father through the death of his Son, How much more, having been reconciled to God by the blood of his cross, shall we be saved into his life? Sin doesn't give you or anyone else any gifts. The only daily pittance it pays is death. But the free gift of God is God's own life in Christ Jesus our Lord, even if you don't yet or cannot yet believe that. I know Turretin Fan believes these things too, which are quoted from the scriptures we share, even if he disagrees with me on how they logically fit together. But regardless of our disagreements, please turn your back on your sins and cooperate with goodness, if you cannot yet believe in God, to the fulfillment of fair togetherness between people. And if you can believe in God, good, that ought to make it easier. You have an advantage many people don't yet have, so don't squander it. Or, as T-Fan and I both believe, even if a little differently, there will be hell to pay. But... If you have wanted to believe and yet couldn't accept a religion that preached that sin super exceeds God's grace because not as God's grace is the sin and where love did not hope for all things and would not be one of the things remaining when all else has passed away, I profess and testify as a Trinitarian Christian where sin exceeds the grace of God does super exceed. It hyper exceeds for not as the sin is the grace. And when all other things, all other things have passed away, these three things shall indeed be remaining faith and hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Thank you for your time and attention. God be with you and may goodness and mercy pursue you forever for all the days of your soul.
0: OK, thank you, Jason. Uh, to written fan, you may now begin your 15 minute closing argument.
2: Well, thanks very much to Jason and, and Chris. Thanks for moderating this debate. I i have appreciated the exchange that we've had. There are certainly significant dis- disagreements between the theology that we share, uh the, you know, the overlapping theology that we share. There's significant overlap, and there's also some significant discontinuities. For example, while we both agree that there's a judgment coming, and that some will experience this judgment. The second point of my three-point contention is a point where we disagree. I I insist that it will be an eternal judgment, that this is what the uh, Ionian word that we find there in the Greek means, that it's been correctly translated in, in the authorized version and many other versions, that it doesn't mean from god and that it always has this durative sense we had we had the opportunity to explore that question during the debate it's a, it's a very important question for if the term always has this durative sense to it and it doesn't have any other sense then uh, the debate seems to essentially be over the only yet remaining question is whether some themes of the possibility of repentance after the after judgment are properly imported from an Old Testament passage into the New Testament uh, discussion at hand. For example, 2 Thessalonians 1, where we discussed the issue of punishment with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. While there is some similarity between the hiding from the presence of the Lord and hiding from the glory of his power, that takes place in Isaiah two, where the, essentially the, the people want the rocks to fall on them to hide them from God's coming punishment. This is act this verse in Second Thessalonians is actually referring to the nature of this everlasting destruction, not the response to the threat of the destruction, as in Isaiah. So it seems as though this uh, this connection, while it may have some valid thematic connection in that the present the presence of the Lord having Glory of power or glory of majesty, is related and also related to other Old Testament passages with the same theme. Nevertheless, the overall arching theme of destruction than repentance is not properly imported from uh, Isaiah two through four and, and so forth into Second Thessalonians one. the uh, The passage in Matthew twenty five. Really seems to be an important crux. While it is true that terms can be used close together with a very different meaning, as in Abacook 3, where there's an intentional, uh, disparity and uh, intentional contrast raised between those who, those hills, which are seemingly eternal, they seem to have been there forever, uh, and the truly eternal ways of God, who destroys these hills, While that is an example of two words close together having a different meaning, one is almost an ironic sense, these hills are eternal hills, but they're being destroyed. Uh, There's no similar rhetorical ploy taking place in Matthew 25, so that we would say there's a contrast between those who are going into the merely ever, uh, you know, seemingly everlasting punishment as contrasted with real life eternal. In fact, what it seems to be is a, a straight out uh, parallel between the everlasting punishment which is the punishment for the goats whether they're properly identified as baby goats or or adult uh, rams of the of the goat variety isn't you know billy goats if you will that's not the the primary issue here the primary issue is that these ones are going to depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire these are not the least of these my brethren these are the ye cursed So uh, that's sort of that's where that argument seems to head. On the third point, we had the question about the salting, but as we explored, while the salting issue is an interesting one, the idea of this salt being good doesn't fit well with the contrast between it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea than to offend one of these little ones. Uh, instead, this uh, fire appears to be an incredible ill and perishing than uh, rather than uh, some kind of uh, positive thing as it's presented in Matthew 18. And even as uh, the issue, when, when it comes to the issue of the, the salt reference, we see that in both Matthew and Luke, those without salt are are destroyed. Turning to Romans 9, there is obviously significant difference in the way that we have understood this passage. But I would encourage you to consider that, although it says that, uh, well, I'd encourage you to consider that Paul's concern in Romans 9 is that not all of his brethren are being saved some are being lost. That's what's grieving him. And his solution to that problem is not that all will eventually be saved, but that not all Israel fit within the promises of God. God's honor is vindicated because God was referring to spiritual Israel, not to physical Israel. Those who believe are the children of the promise, not all the physical descendants of Israel. Therefore, Paul vindicates God in a way that's Surprisingly inconsistent with the universalist interpretation, but uh, con- uh, confirms the limited or uh, let's say uh, non-universal salvation of the uh, the elect only, the whom I will have mercy of verse eighteen, as contrasted with the whom he will whom he hardeneth, uh, also of verse eighteen. Which again doesn't make much sense in terms of God having a universal saving will. God's intentional hardening of people seems inconsistent with such a, uh, such an intent. But of course that's met- really a matter we could ex- discuss at another time. Include We could likewise discuss at another time whether the uh, question of the universality of the atonement is is properly understood to be a a universal atonement or a a particular redemption, a limited atonement, as it's sometimes called. I won't explore that too much here, but I'll just turn over to uh, Jude. In Jude 1, we see the the reference to the angels who didn't keep their first estate. He he reserved in everlasting chains unto unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So in other words, this permanent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, this permanent and and painful uh, and horrible destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is is an example to us, uh, an object lesson of the eternal fire to come. There was no... uh, there was a brief opportunity for those in Sodom to repent you remember Lot's daughters had apparently were uh betrothed to, to men or uh, and there was a, an attempt by Lot to proselytize them to to get them to turn but they they didn't believe they didn't follow and then the time of judgment came this is uh this is the point that really separates the two positions, uh, whether this life is more like Sodom or whether this life is something like the the situation faced by the nation as such of Israel prior to the exile. In other words, this, the nation of Israel prior to the ex- exile has this uh, chastisement followed by the opportunity for repentance. Of course, many individual Israelites didn't. They were killed off by the invaders. But... But the nation had this opportunity of repentance. I would encourage you to think that the the parallels, that the, the descriptions given here, are descriptions that don't uh, don't suggest the opportunity of posthumous repentance. I we're focused really on these five passages, and I don't intend to uh, to try to. F- to emphasize some exegesis of the passages from Ecclesiastes, which I mentioned about the tree falling to the north or south and lying there, or the uh, the living having hope, uh, well, only the living having hope, because those aren't the focus of of this debate. I think this debate really uh, could be resolved, almost completely resolved, on the on the fact that the word for the punishment here mean has durative sense. Has essentially conceded during the debate, and uh that it has, uh, it, in, it seems to have that sense in almost every place it's used. So it's hard to see how it could have only the sense that this is from God, especially given that there's no etym- etymological basis on which to say that the word means from God, even if aedios in Jude verse one verse six. Had such a sense, whether it meant invisible or somehow meant from God in uh, in verse in that that particular word, the other words don't have that etymology they don't have uh, they may have a connotation in that what is eternal can only come from God or it can only be God, God himself being self existently eternal what what else remains i We've we've briefly heard uh, Jason explain that he believes that God loves each and every person savingly. Uh, the scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures teach us that as long as we do not repent, we're under the wrath of God, and we are by nature children of wrath. We, As long as we don't repent, all we can look forward to is punishment. Now, on that point... As long as we don't repent, all we have is, is punishment. I think Jason and I agree. But my challenge to any listener who doesn't believe is this. Set aside the question of whether, uh, whether you believe that you're one of the elect. That's, we're not called to, to try to figure out whether God has elected us or not. Our, what we're called to do is repent and trust in Christ. Repent of your sins today. Trust in Christ and He will save you. The promise that He made is not, does not fall short. That's what Romans 9 tells us. All those who believe are spiritual Israel. They are the ones to whom these promises pertain. They are the elect. So if you believe, you are one of the elect. Believe. Trust in Christ. Throw your cares on Him and, and be saved. But do now, do that now while there's hope. Don't, don't imagine that you have the opportunity to, uh, value your destruction in the life to come. You, that, then it will be too late. Do it now while, while it's the day. That time has been cut short. Uh, uh, He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. So, so seize this, this opportunity for repentance. Consider the patience God has had with you. Now, as you're, as a sort of salvation and, and seize hold of salvation from eternal damnation through faith in Christ and uh, repentance from your sins.
0: Alright, well I want to thank you, you both so much for uh, participating in this debate. I've enjoyed it. I hope that you both feel as though I was uh, fair and that uh, not having any listeners to send me questions, I hope I at least challenged you a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm curious, uh, I'm, w- I'm wondering if you guys would be interested in doing a round two in the future, because I don't know if you're aware of this, Tertian fan, but Jason, um has a, a Trinitarian argument, uh, a positive argument for universalism, quite separate from these texts, particularly, that has to do with the, the Trinitarian nature of love. Would either of you be interested in, in doing a round two at some point in the future?
1: Sure, on that or in some other topic. Or some sorry. other topic, right. Yeah. How about you, Tertian fan?
2: Yes that would be fine I would of course want to have a closer look at what that uh, sort of what that nature of that argument is yeah if if it's available certainly. in some general form because I mean I've seen a little bit from from one author who's who would fall in the same general camp and I was trying to kind of head head, head that way with the Romans nine point uh, about the difference between the love of Jacob and the, the hatred of Esau because I suspected that were some some underlying view like that, but I, I would prefer to know exactly where Jason's coming from before we'd have yeah. to debate.
1: I'll have to send. I'll have to try to point you towards some places where I've talked about it. Uh, okay. The yeah. system, geez, the yeah. systematic thing, as far as the metaphysics go, that's all in the huge. That there's a, a very long argument about that somewhere else that I've written up, but it's it's not specifically aimed toward that. It's really an argument toward Trinitarian theism being true. Well what uh, I what
0: so. I what I'll do guys is uh after after a few months cuz uh um you know I I don't want to have you guys be the only people I ever interview. Uh after a couple of months I'll contact you both and and start setting up another debate uh for whenever you guys are are available and and um really and and Jason if you could as soon as possible email Turret and Fan some links to those kinds of things that he can look right. at. Um but yeah, in any case again, I just thank you guys both so much. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank very you good. for hosting very much. I really appreciate it. I know it's a lot of work, and I, I'm sorry that I couldn't make it on uh, the, the original non-rain date, but I'm glad we, we connected today. <laughs> yeah. So am
0: I, and, and it, was it was no problem at all. Time. Well, there you have it. That concludes the debate. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. I certainly have some thoughts, which maybe I'll share in a future episode, but for now, I hope you'll stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics podcast with with an interview with Larry Dixon. Until then...